The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. There'll be more and more of these power failures. Professor Wright, I've heard that people are saying that the elite are hoarding energy resources. Have you heard the same? Yes, I have heard rumors, sir. But that is nothing compared to what will happen if we leave 30,000 people behind to die. I'm sure our technicians will find a solution. Have you contacted the other stations? Couldn't they take them in? No, they're already at full capacity. Professor Rag, we built new station based on your recommendations that there were large amounts of resources to be found there. Now that we've built it, we must move on. I never indicated that we would find enough energy at New Station to sustain our population. Professor Rag, as a scientist, and I use the term advisedly, you're just not accustomed to making political decisions. As a scientist, I am not accustomed to meeting widespread and systematic lies. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 12, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright And welcome once again to the show on this fine sunny Thursday morning here in London, Ontario where 519-661-3600 is the number you can always call to reach us on the air or of course email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org and today we've got a number of subjects online for you and that includes even looking at the name of our show what do we really mean when we say just right? What is the word right all about? And even maybe the word just while we're at it. Also, we'll be talking about Israel Apartheid meets Israel Truth Week. And we'll be looking at the mint chip, the new taste of money that may be just around the corner. And I'll be starting off the show this morning with shocking prices and shocking shortages in the field of energy in this province. How are you feeling energy-wise today, Robert? You got a lot of energy left after all the work we've been doing on all these things lately? <laughs> well, we have been doing a lot of work, but yeah, I'm up for the show. I always am. That excites me. Excellent. Well, you know, Ontario's electrical power system has been built on a systematic series of lies since it was first taken over by the government way back when. And I remember as long ago as 1984, the year Freedom Party was founded, that the party was shouting about this and what was basically met with indifference, denial, and outright obfuscation. We're in for a shock with Ontario Hydro, we warned way back then. Well, it turns out the shock is only now beginning to really be felt, even though it was understood years ago by many people. Another interesting thing, you know, the whole thing about the Ontario Hydro system, we don't need to be reminded about our bills. I'll be getting back to that later on in this segment. But another thing came up too, not just hydro, but water. You hear all the complaints about everyone being shocked that when they learn that conservation apparently does not pay. <laughs> when the city announced that because of successful conservation of water, the rates would have to increase. You hear that? I did. Yeah. yeah. Now, I observed this phenomenon and predicted this very thing on the show several years ago. I said, listen, every time you conserve, you're creating economic problems. What you want to do is produce. That's the, that's the real key to the answer. 
but then I got distracted. I was going to get into this thing more deeply with Ontario Hydro until locally this lawsuit came up here in the city. Hear about that class action lawsuit? Oh, with about the, the gas. Yes. Yes, of course. And price fixing. It's in Kingston, I believe. Well, that was where it occurred, but mm-hmm. the, but the lawyers are here in London, yeah. And uh, there's a class action lawsuit from which no one but the government will benefit, essentially. Being launched right here in London by Siskins, and I've heard figures in the multi-million dollars, over some so-called price fixing uh, some five years ago. Um, much to London's shame, I think, which seeks to fine and penalize three gas distributors for so-called price fixing. One of them was... Um, Canadian Tire, and I don't yes. quite remember who the other two were. But apparently Siskins specializes in this kind of, and I hate to have to, have to call it this, it's legal obscenity. It really is. Lawfare. Yes. It's insane. There's no justification for it. It's injustice in the extreme, a subject to which I will return to later in the show today. Well, the fix is in all right, but it's not a price fix. It's a guilt fix. <laughs> That's the situation. You're guilty, guilty, guilty if you're in business. And there's a good reason for that. Apparently, the three companies involved, one, one being Canadian Tire, would call each other up every day and ask what the other was charging for gas and then set the prices to the same amount. And this happened in eastern Ontario some five years ago. Um, now, Charles Wright is one of Siskin's lawyers who pointed out yesterday that having the players plead guilty was handy because apparently they already pleaded guilty to this, which was a big mistake and stupid and cowardly, I think. But being stupid and cowardly aren't crimes in and of themselves. If if this was a government action, you know, one price fits all, then our politicians would be rewarding the price fixers, wouldn't they? As they do in health care, in education, in electricity, and a host of other government monopolies that all operate on the principle that you and I are not allowed to compete with you them. You know, I'm shaking my head here, Bob. You know in Newfoundland that they um, have regulated gas prices, so absolutely all the uh, gas stations charge the exact same amount wherever they are in Newfoundland. And it's usually much higher than they would normally charge if they didn't have fixed prices. It's so it's silly. It, it is absolutely amazing. And to say nothing of all the government-regulated marketing boards. What are they doing? They're price-fixing. From milk to wheat, of course, the wheat one just went down. So, you know, I was thinking about this. Okay, so I get up in the morning, and I call my competition. He tells me he's charging a buck thirty for a liter of gas, so I do the same. That's called price-fixing under our stupid competition laws. They call it the Competition Bureau. It's kind of oxymoronic and Orwellian all-in-one. The sheer hypocrisy is unbelievable. Okay, so I get up in the morning, and I call my competition. He tells me he's charging $1.30 for a liter of gas, so I charge less, $1.28 a liter, because I have a policy of charging two cents less so I can increase my share of the market. That's also price-fixing. But is it actionable? Okay, so I get up in the morning, and I call my competition. He tells me he's charging $1.30 for a liter of gas, so I charge more. Dollar thirty-three a liter because I haven't had my station's tanks filled up yet this morning, and I don't want to run out of my supply of fuel. It's, that's also price fixing, but it is is it actionable? They call that gouging. Well, of course, the answer is yes, yes, and yes to all three. Under broad anti-competition principles set by government, which is the only entity, by the way, in society 
capable of fixing prices, and which does so each and every day of the week with each and every product it forces us to buy from it, because government is now turning into a business. Remember state capitalism from last week? (laughs) That's what we're getting into. All forms of setting prices with the knowledge of what your competitors are charging can be considered price fixing of some sort. So basically, you have to set your prices in total ignorance in order to be free of these laws. If you charge too little, you're undercutting the competition. That would be called unfair competition. If you charge the same, it's price collusion. If you charge more, well, then you're gouging your customers. Such is the nature of all antitrust laws, which, incidentally, Robert, were the very first laws that Ayn Rand ever pointed to in her very first essay in the very first issue of the Objectivist Newsletter back in 1961. She said, if you're going to start a political movement, this is the first issue that you should tackle because it is basically terrorism in disguise. There's another example of it just the other day. In the United States, the uh, U.S. government is going to be going after Sony and some book publishers for setting the prices of e-books. And Amazon apparently is gleefully wringing its hands, saying, now I can undercut and set my low prices to grab a greater share of the market, and then when I have the entire Kindle market or the e-book reader market, then, of course, look out for those high prices, because then you can charge whatever they want. Which is nonsensical. Thanks to the government. Right. Now, what, what Ayn Rand wrote in her first essay is quite enlightening. She says, there's only one difference in the legal treatment accorded to a criminal or to a businessman. The criminal's rights are protected much more securely and much more objectively than the businessman's. And she added, the antitrust laws, an unenforceable, uncompliable, unjudiciable mess of contradictions, and that means evil, have for decades kept businessmen under a silent, growing reign of terror. Yet these laws were created and to this day are upheld by the conservatives as a grim monument to their lack of political philosophy, of economic knowledge, and of any concern with principles, end quote. And that was written when? 1961. Applicable today. Not only that, applicable for decades before that, because that's what she says in her essay. So this is nothing new. But here is the reality. All prices are fixed by the people who own the product or the commodity that is being sold. They own it. That's why they have a right to charge what they want for it. When was so fundamental a right deprived us? Obviously a long time ago. After all, We could choose not to sell our product at all, couldn't we? Wouldn't that be a crime too? Because if price fixing is a crime, then refusing to sell at any price (laughs) has to be the worst of all possible economic crimes, especially with gas. Because haven't you heard? People need gas. We need it. So running out of gas should also be maybe punishable by the death penalty, don't you think? (laughs) Keep consistent with these laws. Because haven't you heard? People need gas. That's the argument, because we need it. Therefore, we have a right to to go after the people who who work to provide it for us. I I just can't believe anything could be so sick. (laughs) And, you know, every day on the radio I hear announcers tell us in advance what the going price for gas will be, quote, at most gas stations for the next day. I heard it last night. Last night I heard that the price would be going down two cents a liter to something like $1.32 at most gas stations in London. Well, how did they get that information to them? Who's doing the price fixing? Did the guy call? Did they call anybody up, or who's sending that? Who fixed that price, and why aren't they being charged? 
No answers, Robert? <laughs> You're just looking at me. Well, I'm looking at you because yeah. obviously it's, in, uh, yeah. it's correct. First of all, when he says most, that's obviously not a monopoly then. Obviously, there's someone well. charging less. And I know that where I fill up at the Pioneer on Dundas Street, it's always, always, always cheaper than, say, the Petro-Canada just down the road. Well, the, so always. They're, so they're price fixing their price lower than the competition. And I never, ever go to the higher price one. Right. I support the lower price one. Obviously, it's to my of course. benefit. Yeah. Then there's the argument about crude. Well, everybody says, well, look, at crude prices are going down. Why aren't our gas prices going down at the same time? Well, you know, the, the problem is that crude prices only have a very indirect relationship to local gas prices. Crude oil is raw and unrefined, like some people, I think. The gas we put in our cars has been refined and is produced, is a produced product run through something called... A refinery. <laughs> Amazing, eh? Maybe some people should be run through refineries, too. There have been no new refineries built in North America for decades. And so the slightest local blip in production can have extreme effects on local prices over a very short time. And it happens when they, you know, when one of the, the refineries goes down, has a technical difficulty, or when they're switching from one type of fuel to another for, for seasonal reasons, etc., etc., so, I guess the bottom line on the gas situation is that if you really want cheap gasoline and cheaper energy, here's what you have to do. You have to end all competition bureaus. Get the government out of business entirely and get it back into the task of governing. Wouldn't that be something, a government that governs? Government means shortages. Government means rationing. Show me an exception and I'll give you a reward of some sort because I, I, don't, I wouldn't have to worry about it because it just doesn't happen. Capitalism and free markets mean production and lower prices. So get out there and use as much water and electricity as you can still afford because that's when you're getting the best price. Give you an example of what I mean. Just got our electric bill from London Hydro over at Freedom Party's offices. I don't pay my own electricity in my apartment because it's part of the rent, so I don't really know what I pay there. But I do have an example of what the bill looks like there. And Freedom Party's office on Commissioner's Road West there used, get this, $2.51 of electricity between February 26 and March 26. Now, I'd call that conservation on a pretty grand scale, wouldn't you, Robert? It's pretty cheap. Yep. <laughs> but the government's reward, and I say government, not London Hydro, because it is the monopoly environment which can only be created by government that makes all this possible. So what's my reward? Well, our bottom line billing for $2.51 of electricity is $35.80. And that's after McGinty's 10% Ontario Clean Energy Benefit of $3.97 kicks in, without which our bill would have been $39.77 for 35.39 kilowatt hours of power. Our billing states that we're paying $0.07 cents per kilowatt. Now, there's a lie. Because, in fact, the price we pay for our lack of use is $1.12 per kilowatt hour. Not the $0.07 cents per kilowatt hour. They have the nerve to print on the billing. It's a difference of $1.05 per kilowatt hour, 16 times higher than the stated price. Now, that's because, of course, we're using so little, so little power. If I used a million dollars of power, then that, all these basic charges would be lost in the overall uh, um, price. The delivery and regulatory charges on the electric bill serve the same purpose as the price increase they're planning on water rates to make up for the lower demand. That's why they're doing it. 
Yet no one calls any of this price fixing. Where's Siskins? They should be out there getting these people. Like, how insane is that? So it's just one more in the series of systemic lies we get fed to make it appear that the government can run any business, which it cannot. We buy it because we're forced to. But Siskins isn't filing a class action suit against London Hydro on behalf of London citizens who are real and can be refunded. Isn't going to happen. So that's my little two bits on my $2 anger worth. about yeah, $2 <laughs> worth of, of bitching and complaining about our power rates in this province. They're not going down, folks. They're going to keep going up as long as we keep voting the governments in that we have. And that's it for now. Next uh, subject, what are we get turning into next here, Robert? We're going to be talking about money. Is that right? The new taste of money. Yum. We'll be back right after this. Governor Cleary, are we ready to begin? Uh, yes. This is merely an information session on the incident on the main platform. Lieutenant Damien, are we in control of that incident? Yes, sir. We have detained five citizens on Grand Star's main platform. What was it about? We've had to reduce our power supply to sectors L2 and L7. Apparently, the troublemakers were inhabitants of those sectors. Governor Cleary, you're going to have to make it absolutely clear to the population of Grand Star Station the power rationing is going to be a reality unless our scientists manage to find us new power resources to employ. But what is this thing called money anyway? The answer is simple. It's the tangible expression of the relationship between lender and borrower, creditor and debtor. A relationship built on trust. And whether money takes the form of silver coins, seashells, bars of gold or banknotes, that's been true from ancient times right down to the present day. Even lumps of clay can work better than silver coins if people have enough confidence in them. In ancient Mesopotamia, nearly 4,000 years ago, people used clay tablets like these ones to commit themselves to particular financial transactions. For example, this one, found a little southwest of Baghdad, specifies that a debtor will repay a lender 330 measures of grain on the harvest day. But this one's even more fascinating because what it says is that a debt of four measures of barley should be repaid to the bearer of the clay tablet. And it's that idea of repayment to the bearer that really fascinates me. If the phrase sounds familiar, then it should. Just take a look at a £20 note. Banknotes have next to no intrinsic worth. They're simply promises to pay, just like the clay tablets of ancient Babylon four millennia ago. On the back of the $10 bill, it says, In God we trust. But it's not really God you're trusting in. By swapping your goods or your labor for a fistful of these things, you're trusting the U.S. Treasury Secretary not to produce so many of the damn things that by the time you come to spend them, they're worth even less than the paper they're printed on. This issue of confidence isn't just financial theory. It's real. 
The whole of our economic system is built on it, as are the decisions of its overlords, like ex-chairman of the Federal Reserve and now economic advisor to President-elect Obama, Paul Volcker. Well, if people have confidence in something that doesn't cost much to manufacture, namely a piece of paper with some printing on it, uh, and so long as people have confidence in that piece of paper that it's going to maintain its value, and it maintains its value because people are willing to accept it, it's all a kind of, not a con game, but it's a confidence game. There's no question that it's a confidence game. You have confidence in whatever it is, and it's convenient, it's divisible, easily held, makes good money. Money, money, money. I mm -hmm. love the sound of money. <laughs> Just like Danny DeVito in the Other People's Money. which From which we'll be hearing a little clip of later, later on, I That's believe. That's right. You know, I was going through the National Post the other day, and... Um, just skimmed over this headline, Mint Chip, A Sign of Things to Come. And the first thing that hit, hit my mind was that I'd never buy potato chips the taste of mint. <laughs> That's absolutely ludicrous. What, what's the National Post getting into talking about chips? Well, I actually didn't read the article. Oh, you thought it was about food. <laughs> I, I truly thought it was about minty chips. <laughs> and so later on, I went back to the National Post. Well, um, now you got me thinking National about Post. Mint, minty chips. Hmm. <laughs> Somebody's going to come up with that. Yeah. And... Um, Went back and I looked at the front page headline and it says, The end of cash, dropping the penny was just the beginning as Mint decides digital future. And of course, what they're talking about is the Canadian Mint who last week announced the release of the so-called Mint chip. And it's not a potato chip. It is apparently a digital form of money. Now, they've tried this before with the Bitcoin back in 2009. Uh, not, I don't think it was the Canadian Mint, but Bitcoin was around 2009. With a similar sort of uh, operational mm -hmm. operation, but um, it got hacked. And, of course, it's, it, I don't know if anybody's heard of uh, Bitcoin anymore. But uh, the mint chip, the Royal Canadian Mint says, is unhackable. And well, I don't know how anything know on, that. that depends on computer yeah. technology and binary code can possibly be unhackable. Is that is that possible? Uh, Unless there's some physical me, no, I don't know about something that. or other. But remember, I called you up when I read the article, and I said, "Hey, Bob, did you hear about this mint chip thing?" And I told you roughly about it. And your your initial reaction was negative. Oh yes, because if it really meant the end of cash, then we'd be in trouble. We couldn't mm -hmm. be a free society anymore. Right. Well, that's, I think, is just uh, an overblown headline, the end of cash, mm -hmm. as the National Post says. Same but, thing Captain Picard keeps saying on... Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> on we're Star in we don't need yeah. money yeah. in the 24th century. Give me a break. Yeah. So anyway, I started to look a little more into it. I went down to the Royal Canadian Mint site, looked at their videos, read their stuff about it, and it has a number of positives, I have to admit, and, and they are, and I list them. Well, first of all, it's anonymous, just like cash. It's anonymous. That's, it's apparently that's, anonymous. It's not like a debit card, then. No, there's no database in there once you have the, the cash, apparently, in digital format on this little chip, which I imagine is going to be look like a USB drive. Well, no, I have a... I have it's anonymous. Nobody knows who, who owns it. Sure, I have something like that already, and it's my laundry card where, that we have in our building where I live, right? Mm -hmm. you, have, you fill your laundry card up, and instead of putting coins in the laundry machines, yeah. you put this card in. Yeah. And, or a uh, Tim card. Yeah, same kind of deal. Yeah, very and similar. So how is how is the mint chip significantly different from that? And why would I want that instead of what I've already got? I think it's it's ubiquitous use because you can't take your laundry card, plug it into your computer, and buy um, a song from uh, iTunes. 
You can't take that well, laundry card if it was programmed and to go do to that. Tim Hortons and buy a coffee with it. You can't take your laundry card and give your kid an allowance. Understood. You can't take your Understood. You know what I'm saying. But it's the same principle. It is a very specific use, that laundry card or the Tim Hortons Understood. card or the bonus card, right? But the Minchip apparently is, is supposedly going to be currency. You'll be able to take it anywhere and trade with it. So that's the now you don't give there. the chip away. You keep the chip. You no, just you trade. keep the chip. Yeah. And apparently, it's like right now they're thinking of, they have uh, phones where you can actually transfer currency, uh, bit currency, uh, via your phone. You just tap it, right? Mm-hmm. Or you take your Mastercard and you tap it on this thing at Tim Hortons, and it takes away your money. And the same sort of uh, thing applies here. Now, unfortunately, they're not very um, uh, forthcoming with the details of what it looks like and how it works. But anyway, some of the other benefits of it apparently has no limit. You can put as much money on that thing as you want. Can you imagine a million right? dollars on this thing Ooh. or more? You can use now it I'm anywhere. starting to like it. <laughs> and it's small and it's portable, just mm-hmm. like coins in your pocket. Well, can but you imagine you can losing have, it if you had a lot of money on it? That's now I get into the negatives. Okay. okay. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to talk about what we talked about before. Anything digital can and will be hacked. I think that should be a rule. Anything digital can and will be hacked. It's nothing but zeros and ones, fellas. Nothing but zeros and ones. And if somebody can put zeros and ones on a on a chip, somebody can take them off or read them. So I'm going to I'm going to say that that's probably its biggest downfall. Another downfall is it has no limit. So you no, put no. a $10,000 on it and you lose it. Now, if I lost a $100 bill, I'd be crying. But it's only $100, right? Nobody's out there seen a $1,000 bill. I've never seen a $1,000 bill. But you can put 1000 bucks on this thing and you could, you could lose it in the laundry, for God's sakes. You can lose it taking your keys out of your pocket and there you've lost all this money. Another one, of course, is trust. And that is the biggest thing with fiat currency is trust. Mm-hmm. And if you don't trust the currency that you're using, you're not going to use it. And when it comes to electronics, frankly, I don't trust them. If you had a coin in your that pocket... Was the next point I was going to say, people would have to accept this big time in order for it, it to be considered currency. So, so you've got a chip, I've got a chip, and um, I owe you 10 bucks, so I, we, we marry the chips and I give you 10 bucks. First of all, how do I know that that 10 bucks actually went to your card? How do you know it wasn't 100 bucks? Did I make a mistake? Right? Mm. It's not counting coins, and you can say, well, look, here's 10 coins. You know. And what kind of device do you need to transfer given uh, amounts? The technicalities, I don't know, because they don't show that it on the website. It just sounds very complicated to but me. But the trust issue is there. If I had a, a, a bill or a whole pocket full of change, I can put that in a jar, and I can have it there for a thousand years. When I open that jar, it'll be just like day one. Maybe a little faded, I don't know. Just like, like take, the Roman coins that are still exactly. in circulation they today and are still good. They're, per- they're good, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They, by the way, they have intrinsic value, but yes. these don't have intrinsic, intrinsic value. So you take this chip, and it's got a thousand bucks on it, and you put it away. You forgot about it. In a couple of years' time, you take it out, and what's happened? It's corroded. It's degraded. Maybe it got exposed to an electric charge. You don't know, right? Sure. No electronic is going to last as long as coins or, or paper money. So the drawbacks on this bit bit thing, well, it might be it might be cute, it might be techno, you know, it might be mm-hmm. the latest craze. But if I were you, I wouldn't put much money into it at any okay. point in time. I wouldn't point put taken. more than a, than a Tim card on there, like yeah. twenty bucks. But uh, convenient, okay, that's about all it's got. Okay. So anyway, the color of money, the taste of money, mm, tastes a little sour to me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what's coming up is.
two very excellent clips that I took at a conference that held uh, that was held on March 21st here in London at the Royal View Church over in Clark Road. It's called Israel Truth Week, put on by Mark Vandermaus. I'll have more to say about it after the clips, but listen to the first one. It is by Al Gretzky, Communications Director of the um, International Free Press Society Canada, talking about um, Israel, and it's a counter-protest, this Israel Truth Week against Israel Apartheid Week, which mm-hmm. went on uh, a few weeks ago. So, have and, a listen to and these coming two. coming back on the other side. Oh, yes, I'm coming back bumper. on the other side of Stuart Lawton from the Never Again group, a fantastic speech, again, about Israel countering the Israeli Apartheid Week that are held Excellent on campuses. Speech. Yeah, and yeah, you've heard them, Bob, and mm-hmm. you said you've listened to them several times. They're yeah. really good. Give a listen to them when we come yeah. back, yeah. after both of them. Yeah, which will be in about 11 minutes or so. Yeah, because yeah. they're lengthy clips. When yeah. we come back, I'll talk a little bit more about the Israel Truth Week. So, we'll be back Excellent. right after these. Now, I can say without hesitation that if the democratic light of freedom goes out in Israel, that is the beginning of the light of freedom going out around the world, period. The fight for Israel is just not about the fight for land for for a certain group of people. The fight for Israel is the fight for the very soul of freedom to survive. A year ago, I was in uh, Toronto at the Geert Wilders event, and I uh, heard Ezra Levant having a conversation with uh, Rabbi Hausman, and I am going to have to paraphrase what he said because I don't remember the exact words. It was the concept that stuck with me. It was like this. 60 years ago, the Jews were being murdered. Today, they are committing suicide. It was, I am sure, from a sense of frustration that that was said, a sense of a people who have been persecuted for so long that sometimes the easiest way is to just get along. Because they have stood alone for so long, sometimes capitulation keeps you alive. But those times are over, and I want to say here and now that I, for one, wish to add my voice to the growing number of voices that are saying, no longer will we stand alone, we will stand together. Now, I was reminded of that uh, discussion between uh, Ezra and Rabbi Hausman earlier this year when I was watching a video that I had borrowed from Rose Lacks. The video was entitled, Ever Again. And it's part of a five DVD series that she had ordered from the Simon Wiesenthal organization. Marvelous. It it, it is just, it's mind boggling. Now, I could not watch this hour and a half video in one sitting. I watched about 45 minutes of it. I put it on pause and I went away. Then I came back, sat down and watched the rest. Now, I didn't do that because of the atrocities that were incurring on that screen and there were many of them. 
No, I could not stand to sit there that whole time and watch it because as I watched it, I realized what I was looking at on that screen from 60 years ago was occurring around me today. That it was as if we learned nothing from that horrible time. Let me conclude with these thoughts. One who hears a lie and says nothing has not really heard the lie. One who sees an injustice and does nothing does not truly understand that injustice. Israel Truth Week is a demonstration that the lie has finally been heard and that the injustice will finally be dealt with. Israel Truth Week is an important step in bringing forth the truth. For too long, we have all stood back and we have allowed those individuals who would want to destroy Israel we have allowed them to spew their hatred around the world. The time has come to fight back. Not with more lies, with something simpler, more beautiful. The truth. Ten years ago, I took my first steps to becoming a political activist, although I had no way of knowing this at the time. Now, along with music, for I am a musician, politics threatens to dominate my life. It's been a fascinating and stimulating intellectual odyssey, one that I would not have missed for the world. The cataclysmic events of September 11, 2001, had an enormous effect on me, and I began reading voraciously across the political spectrum. I wrote letters to newspapers, then started contacting those who had had letters written. One of my calls led me to the Never Again group, NAG, a Hamilton-based collective dedicated to supporting the State of Israel and making the connection between what happened then, the Holocaust, and what is happening now. Nag also tells us why we should all care. People wonder whether I'm Jewish. I'm not, but that's hardly the point. If only Haitians cared about Haiti, that country would have received precious little recent international aid. I have no religious affiliation, in fact, and I haven't even visited Israel, but over the past decade, a pattern has emerged. I find that opinions about Israel are reliable predictors of clarity of thinking about global issues, with some people thinking rationally and others getting everything backwards. Yes, backwards. The United Nations Human Rights Commission has tabled more resolutions condemning Israel than all other 191 UN member countries combined. Of course, this is backwards. Anyone insisting that, say, Honda Civics caused more accidents than every other make and model of vehicle on the road combined would be laughed out of the room. But a comparably idiotic position adopted by the UN is received with solemn consideration. Why? One reason is the imposing presence at the UN of the 57 government organization of the Islamic Conference, 
OIC, a voting bloc that frequently demonizes Israel and uses the UN to shield its member states from scrutiny. Some people deplore Israel's insistence that it be recognized as a Jewish state. They say it's exclusionary, it's racist, but they're silent about the OIC's 57 countries who self-identify, obviously, as Islamic. Why should one country in the world, in its ancient homeland, not call itself Jewish? The OIC, by the way, is the world's second largest international organization after the UN itself. In population terms, we're talking about 6 million people against the OIC's 1.5 billion. That's 250 to 1. Our universities and our elite opinion makers are largely in thrall to a mindset that regards transnational global organizations such as the UN as somehow elevated, despite being comprised mostly of non-free states. Like many of us, I was imprinted with warm, fuzzy feelings about the UN as a child, carrying UNICEF boxes around at Halloween. It took me years to see that the UN has become something else entirely, a fatally flawed organization that empowers dictatorships by putting every nation on an equal moral footing. And once you get stuck in the tar pit of moral relativism and political correctness, you forfeit individuality and freedom of thought. For example, many of our best and brightest consider Stephen Harper a less admirable individual than Fidel Castro. Despite the firing squads that enabled Castro's regime and his iron-fisted rule of an island prison. Capitalism has raised more people from poverty than any economic model known to man, but is reviled for not being perfect. Christianity's sins are reflexively enumerated, but it is unthinkable to discuss the ways in which Islamic jihadists use the texts and teachings of Islam to justify violence. Of course, it requires no courage to denounce democracy or Israel or Christianity. Knowing you're not going to get your head bashed in is a big part of the appeal. Commentators from Golda Meir to Benjamin Netanyahu have insisted that if Israel put down its arms and said we will fight no more, there would be an immediate destruction of the state of Israel with mass murder of Jews. But if the Arab states were to put down their arms and say we will fight no more, there would be peace. Anyone who has read the inflammatory statements of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and the leadership of Hamas, Fatah and Hezbollah knows this truth. That it is not recognized as such is because political correctness does not, cannot recognize evil. We are loath to admit it, but evil can, evil can be present in any society on earth. It is a temptation we all fall into from time to time. To do what seems generous in the short term and to extend consideration to others, especially those perceived to be different from us. A much more challenging stance is to consider what the unintended long-term consequences of such generous instincts might be, and whether these results might still be good. This is the opposite of political correctness, and it is essential, in fact, because history has never been politically correct. What Israel is facing now is an evil that will threaten all of us, sooner or later. An existential threat to the values of the Enlightenment, 
of Western society. The evil is Islamic supremacism, which seeks nothing less than to dominate everyone on earth. To an Islamic supremacist, our Western freedoms are mere obstacles to be overcome on the way to a global totalitarian state. They proclaim this repeatedly. Last fall, though, NDP foreign affairs critic, critic Paul Dewar objected to Stephen Harper's statement that the major threat to Canada is Islamicism. Mr. Dewar said that the 10th anniversary of 9-11 should be a time for reflection on how we can build a more inclusive society to end extremism. But we already live in the most exclusive society in world history, with gender equality, gay rights, official multiculturalism, freedom of religion, Olympics for the disabled, and on and on. The threats to us come from the least inclusive societies on earth which want to remake our society to be just like theirs. It's because we're inclusive that they hate us. This is Just Right on CHW Radio 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on the conversation, <clears throat> or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And of course, that was Stuart Lawson from the Never Again Group speaking at the Israeli or Israel Truth Week conference. And just a bit about that conference. It's held on March 21st, two weeks ago. Powerful speeches, by the way. Powerful, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Preceding speech was uh, Stuart Lawton. Before that was Al Gretzky. Yeah, two thumbs up for both of them there. Well, that week I attended, and unfortunately, Bob, you didn't um, you didn't go. You weren't able to go, but I was there with uh, a friend of mine, and uh, we filmed it. We took that recording of the entire week, the entire uh, presentation, I should say, ten, twelve yeah. presenters, twelve presenters. Those were just two, and well turned out at the Royal View Church on Clark Road. And it was put on by Mark Vandermoss, a frequent guest on this show. As a matter of fact, Al Gretzky's been on this show. Stuart Lawton has been a phone-in guest on this show. And the MCs were Stuart Lawton. And by the way, Stuart Lawton, I don't know if people out there know this, but he was actually one of the founding members of Canadian Brass. Hmm. You can find uh, YouTube videos him, of him um, playing the trumpet in the Allura uh, <laughs> Quarry. That's why he referred to himself as being a musician. Yes, yeah. he is. And uh, Mary Lou Ambrosio was another MC, and she's, of course, a, a guest on this show, and she's from the International Free Press Society Canada. And I'm just going to run down the guests, because all of the speeches from the Israel Truth Week conference, which, by the way, was held sort of as a rebuttal, a retaliation against the idiotic notion of Israel Apartheid Week, which goes on on many campuses throughout the world, around the same time. But the guests were Mark Vandermoss, and he, of course, was the conference organizer, and again, a, a guest on this show, and known for picketing outside the London Mosque here on Oxford Street, and also for Caledonia. Avi Bramer from Israel on Campus, a young man um, who gave a passionate speech, which is online already. You just go to our YouTube channel at Just Right Media. And um, you'll find all of these videos. So it's Just Right Media, one word, one word on YouTube. Or go to our website, and there'll be links to them there. And Al Gretzky from the International Free Press Society, his speech was called Free Speech. We just heard a bit from that. There's more to it, and it's online already. 
Andrew Lawton, Editor-in-Chief of the Landmark Report, uh, a guest, again, on this show from, uh, from the past. He spoke of the need for Israel. Stuart Lawton, a Never Again group, top ten reason Israeli apartheid or Israel apartheid is an insult to your intelligence. And we just heard a little bit from that speech. Gary McHale, again, another guest on our show here from the past, from Canadian Advocates for Charter Equity, or sorry, Charter Equality, and his address, he was the keynote speaker for the morning, was Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail, a blueprint for victory over anti-Israelism and anti-Semitism. One of the most fascinating speeches I've heard that day. Powerful stuff. And uh, in the uh, evening session, Mark Vanderhaus gave another speech, Why I Carry a Palestinian Flag in My Pocket, a UN Peacekeeper's Case for Israeli and Palestinian Victims of Hamas, followed by Pisak Ovad- Ovadaya from um, the Jewish Defense League, and he talked about the Jewish case for Israel. And uh, Pisak was uh, followed by uh, Mayor Weinstein from the Jewish Defense League, followed uh, by uh, Reverend Joe Campbell, National Director of Development for Christians for Israel. And his speech was entitled The Christian Case for Israel. And Joe Campbell was followed again by another guest from our show, a frequent guest, Dr. Salim Mansour from here at the University of Western Ontario. And uh, Dr. Mansour spoke about the Muslim case for Israel. Another passionate presentation. The keynote address for the evening session was Rabbi Jonathan Hausman from um, Abath, uh, let's see, <laughs> Ahavath Torah Congregation. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> I should have practiced that one before I got here. From Massachusetts. And he uh, flew up here or drove up here to uh, attend this particular conference. And his uh, keynote address was called The Coming Wars of Unintended Consequences, How Reckless Threats in Action Becomes a Battleground. A powerful speech by Rabbi Hausman. All of these will be available online, all 12 videos. Right now I have four of them already edited and produced and up there on YouTube, so just go to Just Right Media on YouTube and you'll be able to see some of those and uh, the rest of them will follow within the next couple of weeks. And I think they're a powerful statement of truth to rebut the absolute lies of Israel apartheid. That entire concept is... um, I don't know what to say to, what to say about that. If you knew the truth about Israel, you knew the truth about Hamas, about Hezbollah, about Gaza, about Palestine, then you would laugh at the concept of Israel apartheid because it's just so much nonsense. So with that, we're going to take a short break. And Bob, what, what are you going to talk about when we come back? I'm going to talk about just right. Just right. Just Sounds right. good to me. We'll be back right yeah. after this. i tell you something. Firstly... Justice itself is an abstraction, completely devoid of reality. Secondly, to speak of justice and Jews in the same breath is a logical absurdity. Thirdly, one can argue the justice of Arab claims on Palestine just as one can argue the justice of Jewish claims. Fourthly, no one can say the Jews have not had more than their share of injustice these past 10 years. I therefore say, fifthly, let the next injustice work against somebody else for a change.
not all right, you hypocrite. You lie. But baby proof. We had an agreement. We had a standstill. No more buying. Hmm. OPM Holdings, you know nothing about it. OPM? Not a lot to know. You broke the agreement. You embarrass me with my firm. You embarrass me with my clients. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't come on so holier than thou with me. What am I supposed to do? Sit here and twiddle my thumbs while you drive up the price of the stock? I didn't know such thing. You're full of it. All that buy-in coming from some little cockamamie brokerage firm in Rhode Island? You'd think you'd use an out-of-state firm at least. I know nothing about that. Give me a break. Who am I dealing with here, Mother Teresa? You want to play the game, learn to play it right. Oh, is that what you call it? A game. You're damn right. The best game in the world. I'll teach you. It's easy. You make as much as you can for as long as you can. And then what? And then what? Whoever has the most when he dies wins. Look, it's the American way. I'm doing my job. I'm a capitalist. I'm simply following the law of free enterprise. What law is that? Survival of the fittest. Maybe some people don't see it that way. Maybe they don't see it as survival of the fittest. Maybe they see it as survival of the fattest. Oh, Katie, why are you so hard on me? Because you're not nice. Since when do you have to be nice to be right? Well, sometimes it helps, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> but there are, are other times when being right simply doesn't afford you the luxury of being nice. Isn't that true? It is. And no matter how nice you are while you're being right, if the vast majority you're talking to strongly disagree with you, well, even being nice won't help you. <laughs> I found that out the, the hard way the other day. Now, I had, I had one of these strange epiphanies. I was talking to you about this on the phone, Robert. Remember I presented you with a statement. You know, I often found myself in the past saying, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, our term of our show, you know, we call it just right. It's about justice. It's about right. And I, I ask you, remember the statement I said, uh, killing in self-defense is not necessarily right. It is justified. What was your reaction to that? Do you remember? Killing in self-defense is not necessarily right. Yeah, but it is justified. <clears throat> I sort of disagreed with you, didn't I? I think so. Because, you know, looking at the statement... But I had to define my terms. Exactly. Because if you look at the statement morally, it's redundant, really, isn't it? Morally, what is right is justified, and what is justified is right. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I did say that they were sort of synonymous in that, in that text. Right, they? but are they? Because I think that's where the redundancy ends. Because if it didn't, we could call our show Just Justified. justified. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just call it Justified. Right, well, how's that sound? Well, it doesn't sound just right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, is there a time when something that is justified might not be right? And and you brought up that strange episode, I remember, of Enterprise, where where Captain, uh, what's his name? Archer. Archer uh, had to um, steal some stuff from these friendly people who did nothing to him, but for him to survive, and he felt really, really bad about survive, it, right? Yeah. So, the, the, the stealing was to him not the right thing to do. But, but it, was, it was justified. But it was justified because he had to save the lives of his crew and the planet and all that sort of thing. And I said that, no, it was the right thing to do. Because in the microcosm, it looks like he's just stealing. Correct. In the macrocosm, it's the right thing to do. And yet there does seem to be a bit of a difference in what the definitions mean. I went to, the, to several dictionaries, and we won't be able to get all through all the definitions, but you know, you look at just, <clears throat> fair and impartial in acting or judging, true, correct, op, uh, accurate, fitting, proper, merited, um, to the exact point, precisely, 
just right. Even that's actually a definition in the in the dictionary. Um, this is interesting too. Uh, exactly now he is just leaving. A moment ago he just left. <laughs> so you got it meaning now and and before, right? Or by very little, barely. It just missed. You know what I mean? You I could, think those are other uh, definitions. Well, that's you know. Or it can also mean only, but that's as an adverb. Mm-hmm. But justice is the quality of being just. And so many of these definitions seem to overlap each other. And I checked uh, a lot of them. But it struck me, you know, you often hear people say, we don't find justice in our courtrooms anymore. And then it struck me, you know, maybe we shouldn't really expect to. And under the definition of justice, I found two one that would apply always, conformity to law. That would certainly apply to a courtroom yes. if you're talking about justice. But the abstract principle by which right and wrong are defined, I don't think that's necessarily what you find in the courtroom all the time. And I think it's that second definition. It's more abstract and it's more real. Um, it's a more real definition of justice that concerns us here. I disagree with the, the quote that we came out of where he said justice is at an abstraction devoid of reality. It's an abstraction, yes, but it's not devoid of reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think the conformity to law is secondary to the principle itself. When something is justified, like stealing or killing, to preserve or protect one's life, the right of it, the right of it, was predetermined by a court system and a moral system that already recognized the right to self-defense, more or less in advance, if you want to put it that way. So justice in a courtroom really recognizes the validity of a particular claim at a particular time or instant. And that's why our courtrooms don't seem to be places of justice. They just seem to be places of legal procedure to get to the facts, to get to the particulars of a given case. And that's not very inspiring, if you know what I mean, in terms of justice. So it struck me that if you are interested in the justice aspect of a given issue, then you have to be involved in the political process, in the lawmaking stage of the process. That's where justice is created. So, you know, why then do we always assume that our justice system consists merely of the police and the courts? I don't think they are the justice system. They're the enforcers of justice, already predetermined, by the nation's legislators. Does that make sense to you? Good observation, Bob. And, you know, it was really funny because in the movie, Other People's Money, there's that part where um, Danny DeVito, as a capitalist, goes into this tirade against all of his lawyer advisors for messing up his business plans. And he warns them against the communists, who he says would shoot all the lawyers first, right, if they took over. So I would contest that. I think the more regulated and controlled a society is, the more lawyers it needs to impose injustices on a public at large. Much like our first topic, dealing with the class action suit that we were talking about earlier. Now, I'm not a shoot all the lawyers first kind of guy. I'm a keep the lawyers in the legal department and out of the business of justice kind of guy, because that's not their job. And so, if I were to reconcile the moral and the wider relationship of the words right and justified. I think in the er end, it turns out when I used to say, killing and self-defense is not necessarily right, it is justified. I was correct, but I was making a very broad statement extending beyond only the moral equivalence of those two concepts. But if you limit yourself to the moral context, what I should have been saying maybe, and you'll appreciate the irony of this, Robert, is, quote, killing and self-defense is not just right, it is also justified. And that sounds just right to me. 
Not just justified, <laughs> but just right. <laughs> well, you know, there's one <laughs> phrase that we use a lot, and it says, is justice being served? Or has justice been served when a trial um, concludes? And I think that, that alludes to the fact that justice is a higher concept outside of the courts. Exactly. Because they're saying, does the justice, uh, d- did the judge make the right decision? Was justice served? So the, the judge in this case is somebody who serves justice. Exactly. Excellent observation and a great ender to the show. We'll be back next week. Join us then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the I hate it. I'm just dealing with big companies. Like, my bank is the worst. They are screwing me, my bank. You know what they did to me? They're charging me money for not having enough money. <laughs> Apparently, when you're broke, that costs money. <laughs> the bank called. They called me up. They're like, hi, we're calling because uh, you don't have enough money. And... <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I know that. I know that uh, I don't have enough money. And she's like, no, you don't understand. See, you have insufficient funds. I was like, well, that's a good way to put it, too. I agree with that. I find my funds to be grossly insufficient, frankly. I was getting ready to call you guys. uh, But thanks for calling to tell me that I'm broke. She's like, well, we really need you to get more in there. It's really a problem for us, yeah. I'm like, look, I'm not being broke just to f- with you, all right? I just don't have any money. <laughs> she's, 